is Victorian Scribblers, an informal exploration of the lives and work of lesser-known Victorian writers. I'm Courtney Floyd, a doctoral candidate in 19th century literature and print culture at the University of Oregon. And I'm Eleanor Dunville, a PhD student in Victorian literature and publishing at Loughborough University in the UK. Welcome everyone to the second episode of our 2018 mini-series, Victorian Adaptations, Adapting the Victorians. Today we're going to talk about Victorian medievalism, focusing on poetry as sort of a, a touchstone for our conversation. As I mentioned in the first episode of the mini-series, the Victorians adapted all sorts of things, from Greek myth to Shakespeare and more. But I think it's fair to say they're especially responsible for how we think about the medieval period today, although we may learn otherwise. So exploring their adaptations of the medieval period will probably help us understand more about the Victorians and their relationship to history, more than it will really tell us about medieval life and culture. Um, But it might give those who are interested in medieval England a good jumping off point to learn more, and we'll link to some good medieval history podcasts as well. Here to help us talk about the Victorians' understanding of the Middle Ages today is my colleague and friend Katie Jo LaRiviere, who is a fifth-year PhD candidate in the English department at the University of Oregon and specializes in theories of self and personhood in medieval texts. So welcome, Katie Jo. Thank you so much. I'm really glad to be here. As our listeners might be more familiar, I imagine, with the Victorian period, let's go over a few of the things that happened in the medieval period. In 525, the Anno Domini calendar was invented. From 529 to 534, the Code of Justinian was issued. And then in 590, Gregory the Great becomes Pope. In 618, the Tang Dynasty begins in China. In one folklore tradition, this is the dynasty in which Mulan lived. In 651, the Islamic conquest of Persia occurred. And then in 691, Buddhism becomes the state religion of China. In 717-18, the siege of Constantinople occurs. In 800, Charlemagne is crowned emperor by Pope Leo III. And then in 919, the first use of gunpowder occurs at the Battle of Lanchangjiang, a naval conflict. Gunpowder was used as a flamethrower. In 1014, movable type was invented by Bi Zheng. Well, that facilitates printing. Um, in 1066, this is a date that will be familiar to any English major out there, the Norman Conquest of England occurs. Yes, and very important for our discussion today, I think. In 1095, you'll have the First Crusade. In 1122, Eleanor of Aquitaine is born. In 1135, a new architectural style sweeps Europe. You know it as Gothic. In 1206, Genghis Khan becomes ruler of the Mongols. In 1215, the Magna Carta is produced. In 1320, Dante's Divine Comedy is completed. And in 1337, the beginning of the Hundred Years' War. From 1347 to 1351, the Black Death ravages Europe. In 1439, Johannes Gutenberg invents his printing press. And in 1492, Columbus sails to the Americas. 
So today we're doing something kind of weird in that I thought we should have two timelines. Um, one to kind of orient us in the quote-unquote Middle Ages, and another to give us a sense of what's going on in the long 18th and 19th centuries regarding medievalism or the development of medievalism. So... In 1753, Horace Walpole turns his estate, Strawberry Hill, into a little gothic castle. And in 1765, the same Horace Walpole publishes The Castle of Pontranto from Minerva Press. In the 1780s and 1790s, William Lane founds the Minerva Press, publishing sentimental and gothic fiction throughout the 18th and 19th centuries. Um, from 1797 to 1800s. Coleridge writes Christabel. And in 1805, Walter Scott writes The Lay of the Last Minstrel. In 1817, Thomas Rickman writes An Attempt to Discriminate the Styles of Architecture in England from the Conquest to the Reformation. In 1820, Keats publishes The Eve of St. Agnes. As part of the Great Exhibition, Augustus Welby Pugin constructs the medieval court. See the image in the show notes. It's very ornate. It's kind of cool looking. Yeah, it's very cool. In the same year, John Ruskin's The Stones of Venice, a three-volume treatise on Venetian art and architecture, becomes one of the foundations of Victorian medievalism. Of particular importance is a chapter titled On the Nature of the Gothic. And in 1889, Walter Pater publishes Appreciations, uh, which contains meditations on the nature of the Gothic and its importance. Okay, so that should orient everyone, hopefully, a little more as to um, what we're talking about today. But let's start with a question. How did the Victorians understand the, quote, medieval? It's kind of a... It's a great question. <laughs> can of worms there. There's a really great article about this, actually, on Victorian Web, which we cite frequently, by Anthony Harrison. And he writes that, quote, as Alice Chandler has demonstrated, 19th century medievalists from Scott to Morris used medieval settings, forms, and themes in their works to achieve emotional and spiritual effects, as well as to inculcate political and social values. The complexity of Victorian medievalism cannot be overestimated. Yet, one generalization holds firm for most Victorian literary figures who were medievalists. They looked back nostalgically upon what they perceived as a period of uniform social and spiritual values, of social integration, of political and cultural stability. Such is clearly the case in the works of Carlyle, Ruskin, Arnold, and Morris later in his career. These writers followed the examples of Sir Walter Scott and Coleridge. As a corollary to their idealization of medieval culture, they perceived medieval man and his society as existing in idyllic harmony with nature. Victorian depictions of the medieval world usually emphasize, often with startling simplicity, a life of fulfilling industry, of heroic achievement and endurance, of shared values, of filial devotion, and of integration with nature." End quote. Harrison argues that Tennyson and Algernon Swinburne are two poets who actually don't follow this sort of medievalism. Um, I don't know if we'll have time to get into that at all today, but it's an interesting take. Um, but what I think is really important about his quote here is that Victorian medievalism seems to have been a reaction against modernity and industrialism. It was often tied up with arts and crafts movements, sort of like the 19th century is now for lots of people, I would say. Yeah, and I think even 
maybe the early 20th century, you know, people, you see this artwork and things criticising people looking down at their mobile phones all the time Mm -hmm. without any recognition that 100 years ago they'd just be looking at newspapers or books. Mm -hmm. And it's like, what's the real difference there? Yeah, so what do actual medievalists say counts as the Middle Ages? Um, I'm gonna turn things over to you, Katie Jo. Thanks. I think, you know, this is a fascinating question because the Middle Ages is such a huge period. Um, and I know that uh, you guys are dealing with similar sort of problems with periodization in terms of, uh, you know, wanting to do justice to the period. Um, in the medieval period, this is this is really difficult because it's such a long period of time compared to um, sort of the 18th, long 19th century. Mm-hmm. Um because we're really starting uh, with the Anglo-Saxon period, if you want to think about um, the way that culture is changing, we have in 1066 the Norman Conquest. And so that kind of ends the Anglo-Saxon period and results in a dramatic cultural shift. You know, um, the French come in and invade every, every facet of culture, language, literature, economics, mm-hmm. Uh, everything from the top to the bottom. Uh, It's as if, you know, you can imagine living in in the late Anglo-Saxon period and speaking one language, and then the minute the Normans come in, you suddenly have to learn a new language and assimilate. Um, So it's a whole new world. And beginning after the conquest is when they would start to call that the High Middle Ages. And that goes until about 1250-ish. Of course, we hate to put definitive lines (laughs) around those periods. Um, And then after that, from about 1250 to uh, the time of Martin Luther's 95 Theses, 1517, that would be your late Middle Ages and pre-Reformation era. And then you head into um, the English at least, early modern and renaissance periods. Now, there's a whole debate with early modernists uh, about whether to call it the early modern or renaissance period, but that that gets a little bit out of my scope. (laughs) So there are several, you know, smaller chunks of time within, you know, what people want to call the Middle Ages. Um, But even those chunks of time are centuries long. So, you know, the late Middle Ages is... um, you know, 200 years of time. So what what can we say counts as the Middle Ages? Um, you know, I think the time period that the Victorians are really interested in is probably the transition from the High Middle Ages into the Late Middle Ages, where Arthurian romance um, is really at its, at its finest. Of course, Chaucer will pick this up later um, in the in the 1380s, uh, and he will he will do all kinds of things to that, and I'm sure that the Victorians were interested in Chaucer. Oh yes. Um, <laughs> next week we're actually going to be talking about William Morris's edition of Chaucer's works, the Kelmscott Chaucer. Oh, very good. Um, so that's actually a really great. Okay. Time. Yeah. So and and Chaucer, of course, is innovating those earlier um, Arthurian legends and and making them a whole a whole new world putting them into rhyme royal and all kinds of devilish tricks. Um, but so there's, I think, where we're really interested, at least for now, um, that that transition period between the high Middle Ages and the late, and what would we would call the late Middle Ages. 
That's really cool. I can't, it's, it just was blowing my mind putting together the timeline, this vast swaths of time and like the debates we have in the Victorian period about what's, I mean, uh, I have to do a little bit of math really fast. Oh, the kind of canonical 64 years of Victoria's actual reign. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, 64 years. 64 (laughs) years, yeah. Um, And we have divided that, you know, into early, middle, and late Victorian periods. And the special, uh, the late Victorian period, which I specialize in, is really hotly contested of whether or not we could even count it as Victorian or if it's fin de siècle and basically modern literature. Hmm. Um, So, like, just having to account for like a thousand years plus is yeah it's interesting to me you know when you see reflected in um in english departments the that maybe they'll have one medievalist (laughs) to cover all of that time when Mm -hmm. really you know for thinking about um the kinds of specialties in other disciplines um or in other fields i should say you know those are covering such smaller areas so so in my mind (laughs) <laughs> the English department should have, you know, three or four <laughs> medievalists to cover all of that. I mean, to be fair, we did have the rise of um, mass media in our period. True. So, like, we have... True. Change is happening so quickly. Yeah, yes. mountains of texts to work through, but, um, yeah. <laughs> no, I was just thinking to myself that I think that talking about which should be prioritized is a whole can of worms, and we should all work together. Oh, mm-hmm. Yes. I agree. I agree. I'm very much the character in Mean Girls who says, I just want to make a big cake of rainbows and smiles and we can all eat and be happy. So I'm just like, let's let's all get along. <laughs> <laughs> I agree with that. I do. But yeah, I was doing that math in my head as you were talking, of the, which is how I came up with 64 years so quickly. I'm not actually that good at maths. And it's just amazing that you have a thousand years and then we have 64 and yeah, the mind boggles. You know, what's interesting, I, I think, about that in part is that we only have so many texts, mm-hmm. right, that have survived. And so um, because they're on manuscripts, <laughs> um, and I mean, you know, vellum. So it's it's difficult um, that they've had to go through, in order for the text to survive, it's had to uh, sustain, you know, a whole flow chart of of, um, you know, hiccups and problems that it, it might have been ruined in any one of those. Um, and so so we ho- have a limited um, number of texts to work with, I think, compared to other periods. And, and it's possibly why things, um, you know, why we're jumping hundreds of years between, between texts as we study them. Yeah, that's a really important point, actually. I guess relative sparseness of texts. Whereas Courtney says, we've got a period where printing becomes much cheaper and more accessible and everyone's, more people are able to print. Mm-hmm. Right, right. I mean, so if we if we can just talk about manuscript culture for just a second, um, this will give you, I think, part part of an idea of what's, you know, how the medieval period um how it was to actually live there and what it was like to be able to read. First of all, literacy means something almost entirely different in the medieval period. It's really an oral culture. Um, even into the late 
medieval period because uh, there is a fair number of the population that is unable to read. So um, I'm just now working on a, a chapter about uh, Marjorie Kemp, who will be maybe recognizable um, character. And mm -hmm. she, um, she couldn't read or write. She had to find a clergyman to write her story for her. Um, and then she sort of had to depend on him to be writing the things she told him, right? Because she couldn't, she couldn't read, uh, what he was writing. So it's really, you know, even into the late middle ages that, that a fair number of people cannot read. So it's really an oral culture. Um, everything is being produced by handwriting. Um, and there is no way to quickly reproduce texts. So, um, forget where I was going with that. <laughs> no, but I think that's a really good point. And actually, um, even into the early 19th century, literacy rates are fairly low. Um, it's with the introduction of mass printing that um, we think from like the records we can look at, which actually has, I mean, most of our evidence is based on whether people were signing their names with marks like X's mm -hmm. or actually their signatures. Actual letters. Um, yeah. That during the Victorian period, I think, and this is just me really like loosely recalling from the haze of exams, it goes from like 60 to 80 percent literacy over the course of the Victorian period, but before that, um, it was significantly lower. Right. I mean, even, uh, it's not even necessarily a, a matter in the Middle Ages of, um, of class status. So if you're thinking about what it was like to live, then um, really your life depended on whether you fit into one of three, what they called estates from the Latin, you know, your status, right? And so um, the first and most important of those is the clergy because they can read um, and they have, they're sort of the intellectual class. And then second from that is the noble class. And so even nobles, um, you know, usually a king was getting reading lessons <laughs> from his, from his clergyman. Um, but a fair number of the noble class couldn't read. And then certainly if you are of the peasant class, which is that third estate, then you can forget about it. Is there anything else you can tell us just about daily life, culture, technology of the Victor of the medieval period? Or yeah, that's a great question. So, um, the medieval period, I will say broadly, <laughs> because it encompasses so many years, um, was smelly and loud <laughs> um, because there was not sort of the understanding about um, how to get rid of waste, for example. So a chamber pot is a thing you throw out a window into a street below. <laughs> um, and that's not, you know, that's how you're getting rid of your your waste. Um, so it's smelly and it's loud. There are, you know, especially in the more, uh, I'll say urban centers, um, you know, London or, or, uh, Paris, there's, uh, there's a lot of noise going on. There's a lot of activity markets, um, you know, trade certainly, but not in the way that we think of it in the Victorian era or now, certainly. Um, it wasn't always uh, depressing and violent. However, <laughs> it's easy to think of the Middle Ages as, you know, either um, 
really violent and horrible. We, we think about the Crusades, etc. Um, and, you know, certainly in the Anglo-Saxon period, there is a culture of violence, but it goes in seasons and waves. You know, it's, um, it's a part of the culture, but it's not, um, it's not the only part of the culture, I'll say. So certainly there's that, but there's also, you know, quite a lot of, um, I would say natural medicinal technology in terms of a knowledge of what plants could cure certain ailments and um, what not to cook with versus what to cook with. Um, but then of course you have the illness um, that just, you know, the black death that um, just ravages uh, all of Europe. And, and this was really a spiritual problem for them. Um, as much as it was a medical problem. They really didn't think of it in terms of, um, you know, shedding, sharing germs. There was no germ theory at the time. So um, it was really, you know, what have we done to, do, to bring this upon ourselves? And you can think of, you know, whole towns being, being really decimated, probably a third or a half of a town um, dying in a short span. So, it was, um, it, it could be scary. I'll put it that way. Um, but then there is a lot of sort of flourishing in the arts. Um, a lot of different kinds of, um, maybe different genres, I'll say of literary activity. Um, and I think that's surprising because we don't, we kind of want to put it in terms of genre, but, um, but there weren't really strict, uh, genres in, in the period. There were there was poetry like developing as an art form and innovating in that way, but it wasn't, um, it wasn't a strict, as strict as we think of it now. Certainly there was no novel. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I guess I want to, the main point of all of that is just to say that it was a variable and complex period and there's not, there's really nothing monolithic about it. Mm -hmm. Um, so I was really struck by this, um, quotation that you just read, Courtney, and especially the part where, where, um, Harrison was emphasizing this like, nostalgic look back upon the middle ages, um, and particularly the simplicity with which, um, people would look back on it. And I think that, um, that sense of, of looking back at it as a simple time, um, or as a monolithic kind of time where we can count on a certain, um, way of viewing the world, that, that may be where we get our idea of the medieval today. Hmm. Um, certainly that nostalgia remains, um, and that, that sort of maybe unwillingness, maybe just difficulty relating to the period and, and being able to see it as complex as our own time. Yeah. And I think what we were kind of saying earlier, there's, it seems to be an universal instinct to look back on whatever period came before and have those thoughts and say oh things were so, so much simpler and better in a way than they are now in a really kind of myopic way right right and it's a i mean perhaps and maybe you guys can talk about this a little bit um perhaps for the victorians as i think it is for us now um looking back in that way in that frame of mind is a coping 
mechanism of some kind. You know, um, I was reading, I think it was about Swinburne. Um, Swinburne, yeah. Swinburne. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I was reading about Swinburne on, um, on one of the links that, that you're going to post in the show notes mm-hmm. about the way that he sort of really had a distaste for Victorian culture and society um, and really was, was wanting to look back. Or maybe that was Morris. Can't remember. <laughs> That's right. It was one. It sounds like it could have been either of them, to be honest. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking that. Okay. Well, um, yeah, just this distaste for Victorian culture and and society, and wanting to, um, you know, sort of either return to a time or at least think, you know, put into present uh, consciousness a a an imagination of a time that was not as complicated or not as perhaps dehumanizing, at least in the way that they viewed um, the medieval period. And I would recommend this volume if you're, if you're interested along these lines, um, it's called the legitimacy of the middle ages. And it's a, um, a collection of essays edited by Andrew Cole and Vance Smith, D Vance Smith. Um, and it, it, they talk about sort of, what, how, how periodization, um, theory, and sort of historicization have affected this uh, nostalgia, mm-hmm. this idea of of a monolithic and simple um, Middle Ages. So if if that's if this is up your alley, that's a an excellent read. Yeah, that sounds really interesting. Thank you. Yeah, um, we'll post a link to that in show notes too. Uh, I was, yeah, I was going to say something. What was I going to say? Oh, I suspect that the Victorians kind of harkened back to the Middle Ages, not only for nostalgia, but kind of to define themselves. So they were, um, I guess, within the field of Victorian studies. I don't know if this is true, like if you've studied earlier works, but um, it's been said, I can't remember by who, I might do some digging and see if I can... um, cite this more properly, but that the Victorians were one of the first societies to really self-consciously define themselves as a period. Mm. Um, A lot of folks really liked to talk about themselves as Victorians, Mm. like during the time, and um, thought very self-reflexively about their own place in a very modern culture. And so that by looking back to a supposedly simpler time, not only could they kind of have nostalgia for that, but they could also sort of implicitly foreground their own modernity and complexity, if that makes sense. Oh, yes. It's so interesting that you bring this up because I, um, as I was reading uh, our poem, our poems that we we're looking at for today, um, I was reminded of this uh, Victor- a Swedish Victorian named Carl Jacob Christoph Burkhart, who wrote a very polarizing account of um, of the Middle Ages and set it apart very purposefully from the Renaissance, and then of course from his own culture, and with with exactly the kind of intent that that you just described this <laughs> idea of setting ourselves apart as a culture as a period as a, having a place in history that is sort of intentional and on purpose. And it, his, um, his discussion was really 
had this sort of sense of teleology where, um, you know, everything is progressing toward this moment that we are in now. And he makes the now infamous claim that there was no selfhood in the Middle Ages, mm-hmm. that there was no, the, there was no um, sort of idea of the self or understanding of what the self meant. And that that really came to be in the Middle Ages with Shakespeare, I'm sorry, in the Renaissance with Shakespeare and then beyond. Um, and of course, it's it's my job to disprove him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, um, and, you know, it has, it has sparked a gigantic debate in in studies of the medieval um, and sort of a, a war between early modernists and medievalists, which is just silly <laughs> because, um, you know, the texts speak for themselves. But, uh, but yeah, it's definitely this sense of, of using the medieval to define ourselves, right? Mm-hmm. Always, always looking back as a way of, you know, either coping with what we don't like about ourselves or or being able to set up sort of binaries between what was and now how we are. Um, so that's, yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah. And I mean, of course, like if you've, those of us who are familiar with Victorian culture know that even in something as simple as like sewage systems, the Victorians weren't that different from um, medieval people. <laughs> they still threw their chamber pots into the streets yeah. like everyone else until like almost the late Victorian period. I think maybe the 1860s or 1870s was a real sophisticated um, renovation of the sewage system. Yeah. The London sewage system was installed under Disraeli, which I think will be like the 1860s. Yeah, I mean, it's after after the huge cholera outbreaks uh-huh. revealed that um, the sewer was seeping into the drinking water and everyone was, uh, you know, suffering the effects of that. Yeah, so so in some ways, that smelly, loud, gross <laughs> life is not so different in the medieval. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think so. I think it's really interesting um, on that note to think about the, you know, not just how we are different, um, not just how um, the medieval period is is you know a, a strange land, <laughs> but really also how it still defines us, how it's still, um, it's still our touch tone in many, many ways, especially in Western society, to, to think about who we are, um, and not just in ways of differentiation, but in ways of similarity. Yeah, I mean, there's one, there's one um, point that I'll make that I think will draw similarity for us, which is how we think of humor. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, if you read, for example, the French Fabliaux, which are high Middle Ages, short poems, almost always in rhyme, um, and they usually have, you know, overt, explicit, um, sexual or scatological content, um, you will find yourself laughing hysterically, you know, not just at, out of shock that the medievals could write about this, uh, but out of sincere, uh, you know, reaction to the humor that is used there. There's one called Le Crotte, which is about um, a woman who, in the end, gets her husband to eat a turd. Mm. Mm. <laughs> so, there, um, I mean, I guess I laugh at that. <laughs> but they're... Um, there, you know, 
that is in common with our modern sense. And there are certain ways in which um, that will never stop being funny. So, <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, I was going to say, I was thinking of the one of the Canterbury Tales where the woman tricks a man into kissing her bum. Oh, mm-hmm. yes. Um, the Miller's Tale? That the, sounds right. The Miller's Tale? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds right. Yeah. It's very good. <laughs> Imagine that as like a YouTube prank video now. Mm-hmm. Oh, definitely. Yeah, Chaucer was no, he, he was no stranger to these hilarious tales. But what's so, you know, what's also wonderful and really um, interesting to think about in terms of similarities between our our own culture and the medieval culture, or at least ways in which we um, live with, with the same complexity and variety um, that they did, is if you look through the Canterbury Tales, now Chaucer is a master at doing this, but his, you know, they're all so varied and they really show a wide array. And this is part of his goal, right? Is to show just this assortment of people on this pilgrimage who who live such different lives. And there's everything from very serious theological tales, you know, look at the Parsons tale, which actually isn't a tale, it's more of a treatise, right? And then on the other hand, there's the Miller's tale, which is this fablio. And then there are romance um, tales, like the Knight's tale. And they, they, they really give us a really multifaceted perspective of what's happening in the Middle Ages, um, what, are, what are concerning issues, um, what are the things that uh, sort of ground their culture. And so later, maybe when we think about um, Chaucer or when we think about the ways that Victorian poems are using these medieval themes, I think it's important probably to look at what are the things that they are identifying with, that they feel um, that are, are points of connection, and at the same time, how they then simplify those um, those connection points to turn them into a thing that's tangible um, and that they can sort of put their arms around and use for their own purposes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, on that note, I think we're going to take a break. This has been a really fascinating discussion. I thought, I, I suspected it would um, be longer than we planned. So we're actually going to come back with a second part. So keep an eye out for that. Victorian Scribblers is written by me, Courtney Floyd, and my co-host, Eleanor Dumbbell. All episodes are produced by me with editing assistance from Eleanor. The podcast is made possible by donations from listeners like you. If you liked what you heard today and want to help ensure more fabulous content, head to victorianscribblers.com slash support us. After the ball, by Mr.
Music for this podcast is courtesy of Muse Open and Free Music Archive under Creative Commons Attribution Licenses. Our theme is Joseph Miroslav Weber's String Quartet, number no. 2 in B minor, performed by Steve's Bedroom Band. The music for our Around the World feature is Puddington Bear's Bit Rio, and our closing music is George J. Gaskin's 1893 performance of After the Ball. After the ball.